Muddy Knees Media. This Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Winterval slash holiday season, The Athletic wants you to bog off. Because when you buy one annual subscription, you'll get another one for free. And similarly, when you gift a year's subscription, you can get one for yourself and no extra cost. So wave goodbye to 2020 and say hello to 2021 by sharing the gift of The Athletic's unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash galazzo. It's part two of our Galazzo special on the days when Milan went triple Dutch and ruled the world. Hullet, Rijkaard, Van Basten. Yeah, welcome again to the story of the Tre Tulipani, the three Dutchmen who redefined Milan. You know the score, listener, and you know Gab Marcotti and James Horncastle. Hello, boys. Hello. Greetings from ESPN. Nice. <laughs> Thanks, senior football writer. So, where we left things at the end of our last Golazzo, Milan had just assembled perhaps the greatest team the world had ever seen. Van Basten arriving before for buttons, effectively. Ruud Hullet for a world record fee in 87. Then, after Holland's triumph at Euro 88, Frank Rijkaard joining them in Milan. Now, in terms of national titles, we've described this as you know the greatest team, etc. and so on. But in terms of titles, the five seasons that they had together at San Siro, they only, in inverted commas, win the Scudetto twice. Yeah, I suppose part of that, James, is because of uh, the injuries that these guys suffered, which meant uh, if two of them were available, one of them wasn't. Um, And also, I mean, this is the most competitive uh, era in the most competitive league uh, the world has ever seen. I think that's something we should always consider, uh, given that they were up against uh, Maradona's Napoli uh, when they wanted to win it. The Germans of Inter uh, Mm. as well, who set a record uh, points total um, as well. To make goal. Exactly, Samp with with Mancini and Viali. Um, It was a great decade. I mean, even going back to the start of it with uh, the likes of Roma, Hellas Verona uh, winning it as well. So uh, definitely wasn't easy to win titles in those days in Serie I mean, I think the real relevance of the three Dutch players in terms of winning the title, I think the Acme was the 91-92 season because that was the only one where they were all there, they were all fit, or largely fit the entire season. And what really remarkable was it was the post-Saki season and Capello wasn't necessarily seen as somebody who, you know, he was seen as kind of like a, a, a yes man. And that season, they kept winning, but they kept winning using Saki's methods and they did it better than Saki. That that 91-92 team, Capello's talked about it many times, Hmm. he changed very, very little in terms of the approach. And they scored an absolute ton of goals that year. Yeah, the goal difference is plus 53. It's ridiculous. In a a, uh, 18-team league, they go undefeated, score 74 goals, uh, only concede 21. Um, In terms of, yeah, in terms of dominance... This is still, again, two points for a win. It's not three points for a win, and they, they win by eight points that season. Um, that's ridiculous. And, and, that, and that was a season where they were all fit. Michael Van Basten scored 25 goals that year. 
uh, that was also, and I think, again, with hindsight, this might have slightly been potentially their undoing, was also that was the year after this season, Serie A said, okay, you can still only have three foreigners on the pitch, but you can sign as many as you like. And it was a year after that that all of a sudden they got into his head, oh, look, well, you know, let's go one better. Let's have competition for places and then whatever. Mm. And so then they signed Papin and, and, and Balban and, and then later Desailly, all those guys. Right. Which, as you say, was the lead of the breakup uh, of this golden side. But not before they'd come up with some of the most iconic performances, uh, both in Syria and in Europe. James, you referenced this back at the start. The run to the... A 1989 European title in particular, we've mentioned before in, in, in other podcasts relating to this this period in the Rossoneri, the semi-final against Real Madrid, the 5-0 victory over the Merengues uh, at San Siro, which is just extraordinary. Cross. Gulli. Goal. Sono tre. Bellissima azione. Rod I mean, the first leg as well, Van Basten scores a, a header that kind of defies physics. So it's, it's A, uh, from a long way out. He is stooping. I think he's been pushed over as well, and he managed to kind of angle it over the goalkeeper. I think it it takes a slight deflection going in, but it's... it's uh, yeah, you spoke about Hullet's heading ability. I mean, Van Basten is 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 outrageous as well. Um, I don't think he had a long neck as a swan would, but certainly uh, mm. used it uh, to very good effect. And this was a great Real Madrid side, um, yeah, La Quinta del Butre, um, with uh, what five players homegrown in the, in the side. Butregueño up front, um, and they and Hugo Sanchez and Hugo Sanchez, as most well. importantly, El Mexicano, and they blew they they blew them away. And I think all of the Dutchmen scored. In the five-nil win, and true. for Van Basten's goal, it is a right card ball um, up to the top. Uh, Hullet knocks it down, and Van Basten finishes it. And uh, in some respects, there isn't uh, there isn't a move, there isn't a game that kind of better symbolises their influence on this Milan side. Mm. Although you could make a case, I guess, for the final, where in front of ninety thousand Milanisti at the camp now they trash George Hargis. Stout Bucharest 4-0 with Hullet getting two goals and Marco van Basten getting the other two. The thing about the final two is it was like 3-0 by halftime and then van Basten I think scored the fourth goal at the start of the second half as well and it really felt like they could score 10 if they wanted to, but they, they stopped because back then it was running up the score was considered rude and uncouth. Well, the very next season, they won another European title, 1990 in Vienna, beating a Benfica side managed by Sven Jürgen Eriksson. This one just 1-0 with a goal from Frank Reichard. Lovely goal with the outside of his boot as well. And I think that goal from Rijkaard kind of showed um, showed what he could do because, you know, he could do so many things. This was Rijkaard breaking from midfield and sort of very, very calmly putting the ball away. And I think it it, it happened later in the game. I mean, certainly certainly in the second half, if, if I remember. Uh, in fact, yeah, I'm just checking it now. It's uh, 68th minute. So they've had this intense back and forth, they, you know, and now here he is, long legs, just running through the middle and, and arriving late in the box and, uh, and, and, and scoring 
remaining calm and uh, and putting the goal away. Mm. The other remarkable thing about that that game, and it's, it's not strictly relevant here, is is Franco Baresi, who's absolutely everywhere. Uh, pretty much any bit of the game you watch, he's kind of leaping in at both ends of the pitch. I performed a little calculation. <laughs> By my notes, Bruno Pitzel, the, the legendary Italian commentator, name checks Baresi about 180 times in the course of the 90 minutes, which, you know, given maths, suggests he was really busy. Baresi, avantissimo. Va Baresi, Baresi. Ancora Baresi, Baresi che poi viene accantato. On the one hand, uh, and this is true when you watch Baresi at, uh, at the World Cup in 1990 and 1994 as well, um, his role in as a, as a bit of a playmaker as well in terms of uh, uh, being able to spray the ball uh, 30, 40 yards um, and start attacks that way. Um, just his interventions, he's so quick at, mm. uh, at reading the play, coming out to inter- intercept, but also coming out to play that famous Milan offside line as well. There's a great yeah. video on YouTube of them just doing that over and over again. It's quite hypnotic. It's you know, some people like to try and fall to sleep to like uh, rain sounds and that sort of thing. Or if you if you put if you put the YouTube of Saki's Milan playing offside, it's it's quite something. And and the thing about the thing about that season too is that that year they finished second in Serie A. Um, your pals Viali and Mancini, of course, leading some daughter to the title. Uh, they reached the Coppa Italia final and lost. And you know, it's not. Nobody's suggesting that they would have that they would have sacked uh, Arigo Saki if he screwed up the final, but it was a really bumpy run um, to the European Cup final that season because um, I think they played Bayern Munich either the quarterfinals or the semifinals, and in the return leg they 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 went to extra time and they ended up going through in the away goals rule. Before that, they played Real Madrid in a very acrimonious rematch, and I think they won in Milan and lost them at the Bernabeu. Um, and so, you know, when they got there, there was a real sense that this team was tired and it was and it was spent. And I know it's not related to the three Dutchmen, but <laughs> Baresi and Rijkaard in that final, it's not just Baresi's defensive performance, it's the way Rijkaard, who just kept going and going and always looked so incredibly unflappable and, 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 and unemotional, you know, throughout the game. Um, him finishing, I think, in some ways, is kind of like a metaphor of that. Everybody else around him was exhausted, was was fighting and whatever, and there he was, looking fresh as a daisy, and uh, and, and and scoring that goal. Mm-hmm. By the summer of 1991, Milan had, for whatever reason, had enough of Saki and his megaphone. Van Basten, who'd only managed 11 goals that season, 1991, uh, tells Silvio Berlusconi, "Him or me." Well, so the story goes, and Arrigo goes, and in comes Capello. And as you mentioned, perhaps unexpectedly, if you're familiar with Capello's later incarnations, the team flourishes. Van Basten proceeds to have his best season ever. Uh, 25, or certainly in Italy, 25 goals in 31 games in the championship, including uh, one remarkable hat-trick against Atalanta, in which all three goals come in only six minutes yeah, and now the thing about this season, and obviously Milan are a team that are identified with the European Cup and obviously only Real Madrid have won it more times. If you were to ask Fabio Capello in a private moment, he will tell you that that team that was so free-scoring and, and so good, they would have won the European Cup that season or certainly would have been favourites for it. But they weren't in the European Cup that year 
because the season before they played Marseille in the quarterfinals, I think it was, and that was a famous game where the lights went out mm-hmm. and Adriano Gagliani, one of the more foolish moves in his long career, um, decided to pull the Since team off the Signing pitch. Mario Balotelli for Monza, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's trying to beat that with, with the Boa Balo front line. But, um, but yeah, and he thought he was being clever by taking them off the pitch. I mean, there was only a few minutes to go and whatever. It was semi-darkness. They wanted to play on. Um, but as a result, UEFA... I mean, it's it's hard to imagine this happening today, frankly, when you think about it, you know, like such a box office draw being banned for a whole season. But, of course, back then, you know, we weren't as money obsessed as we are today. And uh, so they said, all right, you, Milan, you guys are out and you're banned from European football. And, of course, you know, Capello would have made the point that had they been in the European Cup that season, um, there was a very good chance they would have won it. And... I would tend to agree with him, given how good that team was in 91-92. 58 games undefeated, James, and the legend of the Invincibili, the Invincibles, uh, began, of course, until Tino Espria uh, rocked up with his Parma side um, to San Siro and, uh, and brought that to an end. Well, star of that 91-92 vintage Milan was Frank Rijkaard, of the three of them. He won the Serie A Football of the Year and Best Foreign Player. 92-93 was to be... The Tulips' final season together. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So 1993, Milan win the title again and Frank Rijkaard goes to Ajax and Hulit goes to Sampdoria. Why? Gab, why did... Berlusconi's Rossoneri, who were so intent on dominating, allow these two stars to move on? Well, in, in Hollett's case, you know, you still had the limit on, on foreigners. As a, that, you know, you could only play three at one time. And in the meantime, they had, they had signed Savicevic and they had signed Svane Boban. And um, Papin as well. And Pepe, Jean-Pierre Papin, who actually the Papin thing was a godsend because obviously... Uh, Marco van Basten would would miss um, a big chunk of the season. Um, he played 15 games, scored 13 goals, but had to be operated on in in, in December. Mm. And so it was Papen who uh, who really picked up the slack uh, goal scoring wise. So all of a sudden, Hollett found himself not playing and and and, and sitting out. And remember, by this point, Hollett's 30. He's a Ballon d'Or winner. He's not as central to the team as he was. Plus. It's Fabio Capello, and it's easy to fall out with uh, uh, with Capello as well. I think one other factor. I think I think the Rijkaard situation, perhaps a little bit different. No, James. Well, I mean, I just just to add something on Hullet, I, I think he was uh, he thought he was going to be in the team for a game against Juventus away from home, and they're at Milanello and they're getting on the bus. And, oh yes, uh, the bus story. <laughs> it's in my book. And Silvano Ramaccioni, the team manager, uh, has not told uh, Hullet that he's he's not only not going to play, he's not in the squad at all. So there was a standoff on the on the steps of the bus as basically mm. Fabio Capello looms over Hullet and basically says, "Yeah, uh, you're going to be staying in Milan today. Sorry." Um, I, th- I think the impression was at, at the time certainly that Hullet knew full well that he wasn't. Uh, going to be in the team, but decided to sit on the bus anyway just to make a real scene about it. But certainly things had broken down. There was also the Champions League final in Munich, which Hullet 
thought that he should be featuring in and Capello had different ideas. But essentially, yeah, there's a breakdown between him and the manager. What about Rijkaard then, his decision to go back to Ajax? Well, was that just not sentimental or was that was there a falling out there? I don't know. I, th- I think that was mostly sentimental. I think at that stage, Milan certainly felt that the future was, in, in midfield, the future was going to be Boban. Um, remember, they had also signed um, Demetrio Albertini, uh, who had come on board in the meantime. So, you know, when it comes to central midfield, I think Reichardt looked around and he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to go back to playing central defense because, you know, the, the by this point, Filippo Galli's gone or just about gone, but they still have um, Barres in Costa Curta. He looks in midfield and and it's Boban. And he knows that, okay, so there's me, there's Boban, there's Albertini, but the reality is I'm almost never going to play with Boban because, you know, we're both foreign. So I, I think he looked around and sentimentally he... He always talked about going back to to Ajax, you know, while he could still contribute. And as you know, back then, thirty one was old in footballing terms. And of course, this is another story, of course. But Reichard would go back, and and he would, uh, for a while, be a key part of uh, of Louis Van Gaal's sort of great Ajax teams of the mid nineties in his old age, and, and and mentoring and nurturing some of those younger players. Yeah, beat, beating Milan in the final. Right, yeah, but the, the, the very same stadium where he'd won the final for Milan in 1990 before a, a hugely successful career as a manager. Ruud Hullet, meanwhile, had moved on to Sampdoria in 93. Uh, in the 93-94 season, he has a, a fine campaign with the Doriani, scoring a memorable goal as well in that incredible 3-2 win at the Marassi against Milan. Ed ecco Gullit destro di Gullit, la Sampdoria è in vantaggio, è proprio Gullit. Am I right in thinking that Fabio Capello felt it was outrageous how much he celebrated, the Gullit celebrated? <laughs> I know, but I mean, he had a great campaign that year, didn't he? 15 goals, it was, uh, they finished third, um, Samp, and that was their highest finish since they, they, they won the league and, title a few years And they before. won the Coppa Italia too. And they won the Coppa as well, so... I think uh, Capello even, did he not bring uh, Hullet back? Uh, Hullet goes back at the next season, yeah, but really yeah. unsuccessfully. And then and then makes the move to Chelsea where, well, you know, that's another story. But 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 again, to give you an idea of what Hullet at the time, um, he also, he retired from the Dutch national team. Um, previously, in the build-up to the 94 World Cup, he retired later officially, but he said, I'm not playing in the 94 World Cup. You know, so there was a sense that, you know, he's he's got a big ego. He's not always, you know, it's, he's, he's unpredictable. Do we want him around? And that summer, after his uh, his, his loan at Sampdoria, or actually it wasn't a loan at Sampdoria, I think it was actually... No, no, he actually moved, yeah. Yeah, Capello said, well, let me get him back because, you know... He's given up on international football, and so he'll be motivated. He had a great season. We can use him. And, of course, he comes back. They play some Daria in the um, in the Italian Super Cup, which they win on penalties, where I think Hullet scores. Um, and then a few months later, he's gone again. You know? <laughs> and, and, and then that was kind of, by that point, you know, it was very much the waning in empire of, uh, of Milan. Mm. And another uh, big departure, and the saddest chapter of all, and then was that of Marco van Basten. Lasso! 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. So autumn 1992 and Van Basten at this point is in the form of his life really. As this Serie A season gets underway, he scores four goals against Napoli in a 5-1 victory at San Siro, another of those. And then, James, he does four goals again, this time in a single Champions League game against Gothenburg. I don't think anyone had ever scored four in a Champions League game. But well, it was only in the first season of the Champions League, so no. <laughs> uh, but those four goals there, almost as career-defining as that incredible strike against the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, he does score a kind of trademark Van Basten bicycle kick in that uh, four-goal haul against Gothenburg. Not quite as good as the one he scored uh, for Ajax against uh, Den Bosch, but uh, special all the same. And you mentioned yeah, Van Basten being at his his peak, the peak of his powers. I mean, he'd won uh, the Ballon d'Or three years in a row. Um, that was a feat that Tony Cruyff and uh, Platini had achieved before him. Uh, you know, he'd scored in finals for club and country. Um, and, you know, he decides to have uh, ankle surgery. Just, I mean, it's his first ankle surgery, I think, in four years, just to clean um, the area around the ankle. Um, and instead, uh, it complicates things uh, a lot. I think Milan basically advised him over and over again not um, to, to go under the knife. He did. And I think it's something that he he regrets to this day because uh, he went from one specialist to another um, and the situation got worse and worse and worse um, to the point that, um, you know, he was having to drag himself on the floor from between his bedroom um, just to get to the bathroom on the night. He couldn't put any kind of pressure on his on his leg. Um, and, you know, was, you know, sort of uh, uh, worried that, He'd lost all feeling in the area around his ankle. So, uh, when you when you hear about some of the procedures he underwent, it's frightening, really. The what is it? The Ilizarov frame that basically had twenty two screws put into his uh, his ankle uh, with the the, the frame uh, outside of the the flesh, and uh, had to clean it with alcohol three times a day. It got infected. It swelled up. Just uh, horrendous, really. And what we often forget these days is that uh, surgeries then were so much more invasive and uh, and career-threatening. Indeed so. Yeah, it was the very next day after picking up that Ballon d'Or in December of 92 that he goes off to San Moritz for the surgery and the expectation was he would be out for a couple of months. But he makes a few appearances after that. Early May 93, he scores his final goal as a footballer. It was against Ancona. Alessandro Nista, who curiously was the goalkeeper he beat for his first ever Serie A goal six seasons before. And then, most poignantly, in the Champions League final in Munich in 93, Van Basten hobbling round the pitch as Milan lose to Marseille. Famously, Milan fans offering to donate their cartilage to Van the, Basten's ankle. That, that final, you know, he'd come back, but he clearly wasn't fit. I think it was almost he he played 86 minutes um in that game which I, I you know we, we often we view Fabio Capello as sort of cold-hearted and and and, and whatnot and and of course he is um but in that game I think 
you know, you also realize there were only two substitutions back then. And he had to make a decision. You know, he had Jean-Pierre Papin as the other center forward um, because they played with Ed Masato, who at the time was, you know, kept scoring goals. So he was always there. And so the question, and it came down to, he could have played Papin and Van Basten together. He decided to kind of, I think, stick with his gut, say, because, you know, the Masato thing was, oh, he'll always get you goals. And... You know, and he knew that with Masato, he had a high-energy player. And so it came down to Papin or Boston. And, you know, logic today would have said, well, you know, go with Papin. If you have to go with Van Basten, just take him off later. But with just the two substitutions, um, that never happened. And, and, and Marseille scored at the end of the first half. And Capello seriously considered making a change at halftime and then saying, well, Van Basten got us this far everything he's done for the club, let's give him a shot. And he brought on Papin at the hour mark as they kept chasing the game. And then at the end, he actually takes Van Basten off with five minutes to go because Van Basten simply can't stand anymore. He can't continue. Van Basten's second half is one of the saddest, most excruciating um, you know, scenes that you're going to see. He had the one substitution and he ends up taking him off for a defensive midfield at Aranjo because there's nobody else back. And, and and Van Basten, Van Basten just knows, you know, his face when he walks off the pitch, is you, is, is is just 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 horrifying, even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Well, he has further operations on the ankle, but on the seventeenth of August, nineteen ninety-five, ahead of a summer friendly at San Siro, after two years without playing, he walked back onto the pitch at San Siro, and waved bye-bye to the fans. He later commented, "I felt like I was at my own funeral." He'd announced that he was giving up being a footballer. Fabio Capello, cold-hearted Fabio Capello, is there in the dugout in tears watching this. Yeah, he was in tears or close to it after the um, after that final as well. Um, it's it's weird because I, I mentioned this in my Capello book as well. Capello was a player who he says because he had such a high threshold for pain. Um, you know, could have been a much more successful player than he was, although he was very successful. And his career could have gone on longer if if he'd had better treatment. And I think he he saw a little bit of himself in whatever part of his heart isn't cold um, in, in Marco Van Basten and maybe even wondered about, you know, did Van Basten get the best possible medical care uh, along the way? And I think, you know, it's been spun in the past that by playing an injured Van Basten, keeping him out there for so long on the pitch, Capella was maybe projecting a little bit of himself and what would have happened if, you know, at the end of his career, he hadn't basically been chucked out saying, no, your knees are gone. You're not good enough anymore. Um, And it's almost like he wanted to prove history wrong by believing in Van Basten. Yeah, I think, I mean, going back in to 86 when, Van Basten is playing what his his last season at, uh, at Ajax before coming to to Milan. He he effectively plays an entire season with torn ankle ligaments. Um, yeah, that was what Milan discovered when he uh, he saw a specialist in the first few months of, of of playing at Milanello. And while they kind of got him right at the end of that season, I mean they were very strongly against him um, going to Samaritz for that uh, that operation in in, in 1992. Um, you mentioned that uh, I think in part one that he was such a good golf player, he couldn't even swing uh, a golf club um, because yeah, his 
yeah, he, he was just not, he was just completely immobile by it. Um, and I think it was only when they fused his ankle um, after he'd retired that he was able to, to get something, something like that back. But um, just to, to, to give an idea of the, the impression he made on, on, uh, on Capello, I mean, Capello later on in his coaching career would, of course, give Zlatan Ibrahimovic VHSs. I think it was still VHSs, not DVDs, or maybe Blu-rays um, for uh, for Zlatan Ibrahimovic to watch of, uh, of of Marco van Basten scoring goals because he felt that like van Basten, who Ajax had played sometimes as a number ten off uh, off off Bosman needed to find that kind of clinical, that edge in the penalty area, become a, a goal scorer rather than just someone who was elegant, who could bring the ball down and be, and, uh, and have all these tricks. And uh, of course, Latin exploded in terms of goal scoring more or less after that. And uh, uh, there's that freaky Gazetta front page where um, Zlatan is, is, is pulling off a mask and it's revealing Marco van Basten as though they were the same person. Very kind of Scooby-Doo. I would have got away with it if it wasn't for that pesky Capello. But, um, but yeah, um, very, very moving <laughs> end to his career. Yeah. I'm going to throw this out there. Greatest centre forward ever? Uh, I think uh, it's, in terms of an ideal of, what, uh, of how a centre forward should play, the elegance and the, and the cleanliness of the gesture, I think... Um, yeah, def- I, I would say up there. The players who resemble him most are maybe Lewandowski and, uh, and Zlatan, although Zlatan has an com- entirely different kind of personality profile. But, mm. um, but it's, it's different horses for different courses. I mean, some people would say the original, uh, the Ronaldo Phenomeno as well. But, but I think, the, you know, when you talk about prototypes of, of players, um, when we look at Zlatan, you know, you're struck by how strong he is, first and foremost. And Slatan, as great as he is, you know, Slatan was never fast, even when he got the big long legs moving. But Van Basten was also quick, despite his size, which is unusual. And Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, the, the, you know, he, who obviously, like, like Van Basten, had his career cut short through injury, I mean, he certainly wasn't a prototypical striker either. Uh, so... Lewandowski, I think, in some ways, in some ways, is a good shout. But Lewandowski never had the never had the grace of of, of Van Basten. So yeah, I mean, for people of my generation, Van Basten could just do do so many things so well. You know, we mentioned before what a tremendous header of the ball he was. He was also strong as an ox, which a lot of people a lot of people forget. I mean, Costa Curta tells a story of you know. Back then, they started sort of introducing these like the physical machines and weights and measuring bench press and, and, and whatever else. And, you know, Costa Curta is a big strapping guy, you know, former former sprinter as a teenager, but he's got the muscles and everything. He's like, I'm going to show some of these old guys. And but <laughs> and he notices that, like, you know, Van Basten can, like, you know, beat him on the bench press, not by little, but by but by a ton which he wasn't expecting, you know, he says like, you know, I, I, I'd expect Sebastiano Rossi, you know, or, or maybe Hollett to be able to do that. Not, not this guy, you know, and yet there he was. And he was a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete um, as much as he was uh, an athlete in, in the, 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 the truest sense of the world. So we're, you know, not just sort of strength and, 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 and power, but also the, the coordination. Um, and along with that, he had, he just this tremendous technical ability as well, and I think that's what that's what makes him, for me, the the prototype. And 
and you always wonder what might have been and and you're sad that you know you only saw glimpses mm. what we got though was pretty special uh, the numbers 124 goals in 201 appearances for Milan before that untimely end to his career well with that we come to the end of uh, our story of the three tulipani the aftermath, two of the three have managed Holland. Rijkaard, the most successful in his management career, I think we probably all agree. A European champion with, with Barcelona. Manager of the year that year, then, then moving to Galatasaray and Saudi Arabia. Bizarre kind of vignette uh, or coda on that with, uh, I'd miss this, but in, in 2013, a Florida prep school announced they'd hired him as their advisor of player development. Beyond that, I'm not sure what else Frank Rijkaard's doing now. Hullid, of course, also uh, dabbled uh, successfully and then less successfully in management. And Marco van Basten, not, what's Marco up to nowadays? Well, Marco recently released his book, which I think he's been doing some uh, some some press around fragile. Um, but he hasn't been coaching for some time now. I'm, I'm sure if Berlusconi was still owner of Milan, he would have basically made him <laughs> coach of, uh, of of the team at, at some stage. I mean, uh, I suppose looking back at that time he had with the with the national team, quite unlucky at Euro 2008 after that incredible group stage where they beat Italy, who were world champions at the time. Or was it 3-0? And then they beat France, the runners-up 4-1 as well, only to get knocked out by Hiddink and Arshavin um, with Russia in the, was it, quarterfinals. So, yeah, yeah aside from that, uh, no coaching. The, the, the end, I think, of all three um, is kind of slightly shrouded. And, I mean, Hollett obviously hung around as, as a coach. He, his most recent was when he was an assistant to, to Dick Advocat. Uh, on the Dutch national team, who of course failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, like Italy, funnily enough, and he hasn't coached since, nor do I think he will. Um, Van Basten, at the very end, he spent, uh, and it's it, it, it it funny because you realize like people who run football are also fans. Gianni Infantino is in love with Marco Van Basten, so he hired him at FIFA, gave him the, sort of this role which in some ways now belongs to Arsene Wenger to sort of, can you reinvent football? You know, if you had a blank slate, let's brainstorm, how can we make football better? And you spent a couple of years sort of toying the world, talking to people, coming up with ideas, some of them a bit wacky about, you know, some rule changes. Abolishing ways. offside was, 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 was the recommendation from a former striker. Yeah, funny <laughs> enough. Um, but then after that, he, he kind of he slipped away. And another three... I think the biggest mystery must be must be Rijkaard because here he is at Barcelona, you know, wins the title. He's got Ronaldinho. He's got a very young Messi. You know, you figure everything is great. And then something happened. I think he had some issues in his private life as well. And, you know, as you mentioned, that one year in Galatasaray and in Saudi Arabia. And then since 2013, he, he hasn't, he hasn't coached and in fact he actually formally announced his retirement as a as, as a manager hmm. uh, in 2014 with like a whole press release and you know like he was 51 years old at, at the time i mean who knows he's going to change his mind but it's it, it's something he's, he's he's a very he's actually he's a very private man um i mean look, of these three guys hold it obviously will talk to anybody all day long uh especially if you pay him but you know Van Basten and, um, and Reichardt, far more introspective, of course. Van Basten has written his book and, and whatever else. But, you know, these aren't people who talk a lot. 
and Reichard, especially very private man, has been very, very private about sort of what transpired and, 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 and what's happened to him. And, and he was a bit like that, you know, very much a strong, silent type, I think, on the pitch. Well, introspective or not, their football spoke volumes, Gabrielli. Uh, their five seasons together, the game would never be the same again. Give us one last example of how, how influential these players were. Well, so influential, in fact, that despite what Marco van Basten said about Arrigo Sacchi at the end, that maybe he didn't invent much, um, Rude and Marco live on as a partnership in, uh, in Arrigo Sacchi's back garden because that's what he's named his, his two dogs. And in fact, given those dogs are still around, I suspect it's not the same dog. I think that's what he names every pair of dogs that, that, that he's had uh, since uh, going back to Fusignano. And apparently neither of them follow any of his instructions either. They just, exactly. They just... What a beautiful thought. All right, then, as they scamper around the greenfields of Arigosaki's back garden, that's where we'll leave the three tulips. Many thanks, James Horncastle and ESPN's senior football writer, Gabriele Marcotti, and you, listener, for being with us. We'll be back with more Galazzo soon. And now, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. Marini's Media.